Welcome to the ECCF podcast, a new podcast by the Early Career Climate Forum that explores climate research, discusses science communication, and provides professional development tips for the next generation of scientists. I'm your host, Tony Clem, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Ecosystem Science and Management at Texas A&M University. For this inaugural episode, we talked to Dr. Kristen Weiss, a researcher based at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the communications coordinator for the Long-Term Ecological Research Network, or LTER. We talked to her about her career path from marine research to science communication, about the challenges of climate change from a communications perspective, and about how to become a better science communicator. You're Kristen Weiss. Thanks for being here. Thanks for talking to us. Could you say a few words about yourself, who you are, what your background is? Sure. I'm glad to be here. So I am a science communicator, and I'm currently living in Santa Barbara, California. I grew up in Southern California, and it's been interesting to come back and see, you know, how things like fire are becoming more common in this area that I grew up in and how it's becoming an environmental and a human health crisis. I completed my undergrad studies at UC Berkeley up in Northern California, and then I completed a PhD in Australia at James Cook University. So that was amazing. I studied marine wildlife management. So I got to work with sea turtles and dugongs, which are the Southern Hemisphere equivalent of manatees and they're pretty adorable, uh, and learned how they migrate up and down the coast and how they're managed up and down the coast in different political jurisdictions. So I focused a lot on governance, uh, used social science methodology, and got to live in Queensland for four years. So it was, you know, I can't complain about that. It was hard to come home. Um, But after I finished my PhD, I knew that I didn't want to necessarily follow a traditional academic path, even though I really loved research. And so I dabbled in some different types of communication and outreach and engagement. And I taught at University of Southern California for two years in environmental studies. And this was, you finished your PhD in 2011, is that right? Yes. (laughs) And then you taught at USC and Mm -hmm. UC, what was it? USC. USC. For two years yes. after, right after that. That's right. I think 2012 to 14, I was at USC. And their program was amazing. We would take students out to Catalina Island, teach them scientific diving, take them to Palau to dive on reefs and learn about coral reef ecology. It was very immersive, hands-on learning experiences. So I really enjoyed that. But I knew that I wanted to do something a little more on the community engagement and communication side of things. And I eventually found a postdoc position up in Monterey, California with Stanford, and it was at their Center for Ocean Solutions. And it was a postdoc in science communication, which was amazing. That was like the dream job that I never thought existed. So I applied and somehow got that position, moved up to Monterey, spent a few years up there doing the postdoc. And that's where I learned all about SciComm, So I learned how to write press releases, how to write op-eds, how to run social media, interview scientists, make videos, um, kind of the whole spectrum of things. I was just thrown in. 
and I absolutely loved it. And that's pretty much what I do now in my current job, which is what I got at the end of my postdoc. I applied for a position with the Long-Term Ecological Research Network, LTER, and I moved down to Santa Barbara and started that as a communications coordinator. So now I work with ecologists and write about what they do, write about their publications, their latest research, and basically, you know, find why it matters, um, or I find what matters about their research to other audiences, you know, like what is important about this ecological research for policymakers, for students, for communities. So it's, it's pretty great and challenging. I can imagine. What is it that interested you in on the communication side of things more so than on the research side of things? Do you feel like there was a need for there to be more communication of research or did you just enjoy that more? What was it that made you mm -hmm. um, challenge yourself to, to like keep learning and dive into this communication and community um, engagement? Yeah, I think both of those things. I think I saw a need for wider communication and I was really interested in it. I had always been writing on the side, like writing blogs or writing newspaper articles as I did my science and PhD. I was always making videos for fun on the side and just enjoyed that more than anything else. So I started thinking maybe I should somehow make a career out of this. I didn't know what that would look like at the time, um, but it was always in the back of my mind. And then going through academia, I really loved doing my research and I actually loved writing my thesis, which was kind of weird, but um, <laughs> it's like a love-hate relationship, but I really do love writing. So it's not that I didn't enjoy academia, but I think I felt like writing scientific papers wasn't enough of an impact in terms of the kind of impact I wanted to make. I wanted to connect science to people who weren't thinking about science or who didn't realize how useful it could be or that it mattered. And I also liked being more creative. So writing a scientific paper is very formulaic. And I still think it's important. But for me personally, I just preferred thinking about things in a little more exciting way, creative way, and thinking about how I could um, reach people beyond the academic bubble. So when you think about your job now, is it kind of an extension of the scientific process, kind of reaching into this um, science communication as, as kind of, you know, the next step from, from doing research? Kind of do you help researchers reach out and, and kind of make their research more relevant? Yeah, um, I, I like that actually, saying that it's an extension of the scientific process, because I think maybe even as little as 10, 15 years ago, science communication was sort of looked down upon by a lot of traditional scientists, and they either felt they didn't have time for it or it wasn't necessary or it wasn't their job to worry about communication and outreach beyond publishing papers. Um, but I've seen that change dramatically. And science communication is more and more readily being accepted into academia as a, an important part of the scientific process and something you should think about from the beginning, not just you know, at the end randomly, oh yeah, I should probably communicate this somehow. Um, so something that you think about throughout the entire process. and working with people who are experts in communication or taking trainings to learn how to communicate to different audiences. And I think it's integral. I mean, especially in the current environment we have where people are very distrustful of science, of scientists, but also of politics. And they don't really know necessarily where to go for the right information. So if you learn how to better engage those people early on and build trust and communicate in ways that both they understand and they connect to, and you connect to things they care about, it makes a world of difference, and that's only going to improve 
science. What's your What's your biggest challenge in in doing your job? Is it um, this this just as an example? I I work in climate change climate change research, and um, a lot of the challenges that that me and my colleagues have is that people don't really trust the research. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear all kinds of conflicting messages in the news online, and as a researcher, you feel really uh, challenged, yeah. <laughs> for lack of better words, um, to uh, to just keep up with all the noise that's out there, kind of you know getting getting your message across or or just getting people to listen to you to mm-hmm. yeah. What is what is your? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a big challenge that a lot of science communicators face um, with issues, especially anything around climate change, um, which we deal with somewhat where I am at LTER. Um, I think another challenge or a related challenge is how do you get your voice heard over this flood of information and noise that's out there on every social media channel, every type of media platform. You know, no matter what you're talking about, how do you become a respected and, you know, respected outlet for information? Um, do you have any tips? So, <laughs> God, I'm still learning that one. But I think, for example, one thing I've learned is it's really important to have a consistent tone and... Um, for lack of a better word, brand, you know, it doesn't have to be, not that it's disingenuous or not. Researchers might not want to promote themselves. Right? Yeah, it's researchers like definitely often hate promoting themselves, and I understand that. But if you work as part of an institution where you have communication experts, they can hopefully help in terms of creating a consistent voice and message around your science. Um, and I think doing that... A, like, can build trust. B, makes you this source, you know, you're always expected to be a good source of such and such information. Um, But I also think it's, you can't be afraid to try new ways of communicating either. So getting out more on social media, making videos. So I've been really lucky in the jobs I've had. My supervisors have let me try these things that they hadn't previously done. So making videos and starting Instagram accounts and reaching different audiences for different purposes and just seeing, you know, using it as an experiment to see how it works and seeing who it connects with. And so far, it's been um, pretty successful overall. And for me, it's more about quality over quantity. And what I mean by that is, you know, I may not have a million followers following our LTER uh, Twitter account. But if the people that are following us are engaged, um, are clicking through to our information, are asking questions, are sharing our things, then I know that that information is valuable and that's more important to me. So let's say I'm an undergrad and I'm, I wonder if, if science communication is the right thing for me, an undergrad or a grad student, someone in their, you know, in the middle of a dissertation, I kind of, <laughs> unlike you, they don't really like it so much, maybe. <laughs> and, and they think... Maybe science communication would be something for me. What would you recommend to these people? How could they kind of uh, get their toes wet? Yeah, I'd say there's a type of science communication for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So full disclosure, I am an introvert, um, complete full introvert. And I don't know how I got into science communication, but I did. And the reason why I think 
is because you don't always have to put yourself out there and be in front of an audience and talking to the public. Uh, you can be writing. Like maybe you write blogs on a website. Maybe you even just write a guest blog for a colleague and try that out. Um, a lot of students are overwhelmed to start getting on Twitter, but I've found that Twitter is actually really helpful as a scientist and a science communicator. So, um, so there's a number of ways. You don't even necessarily have to be super active yourself, but there's a lot of really great conversations that happen on Twitter. So I follow the hashtag SciComm all the time, and there's just this amazing supportive community of people that are involved in different types of science communication activities. So you get really good ideas. You can ask questions. People post job opportunities, training opportunities, and they just boost each other up. They inspire each other. So I, there's also groups of scientists that do that on Twitter. And it's a great place to share publications, um, articles, all different kinds of things. And so I definitely think it's worth considering. I don't think you have to do everything. I don't think you need to be on every social media platform and write a blog and give public pres presentations and make videos, you know, have a vlog. Um, you don't have to do all the things. But I think if you find one or two things that you enjoy and think you're good at or would like to be good at and try those, you'd be surprised at where that might lead you. And I think it's valuable even if you think you're studying the most abstract scientific subject that no one would care about. Um, you're probably wrong. There's probably someone that cares about it, and it's probably important that they care about it. So think about how you might connect with them. Speaking of connecting, how do you connect to different audiences, to different, uh, different you know, non-scientist groups? Do you, do you have specific messages for each one of them? How do you, how do you know how to mm -hmm. talk to them? As yeah. a science communicator. Yeah, general. that's a great question. You always have to know your audience, and that's one of the first things you learn at most trainings on science communication, right? But what does that really mean? I think, you know, you're never just talking to the general public. Even if you put out a YouTube video to all of YouTube, you know, there's a subset of people that are likely to watch that video. And so if you think about who you can connect with, I think one of the things to think about is who do you want to reach and why? Um, what connections do you have to that audience? What do they care about? So what are they most concerned about or what are they most interested in? And again, a place like Twitter or Instagram can help you by you know diving into those communities and see what they're talking about and what they're posting. So find out what they care about and then think about how your science connects with what they care about. And that's sort of the clincher. That's where you draw in that connection. And so from there, you can build your message, whether it's a blog, a post, a video, what have you. If you're and if you're an introvert, I imagine you you may be hesitant to mm -hmm. reach out to these people um, actively. Mm -hmm. But if you're saying you have to you have to tailor your message to whoever you're talking to, how do you how do you know what people need to hear? Mm -hmm. Can you find that out on, on social media or is that kind of better yeah. to find out through, through I think you can. I think you can find out some of that on social media and on, you know, blogs or articles that that audience is reading or writing. I think sometimes it just takes practice and time and having to build up some confidence to have conversations with people. So I, I learn a lot by talking one-on-one -on -one with people. Even if I have to push myself to do it, I'm usually glad I did. Uh, because that's also a great way to connect with someone who has very different maybe perspective or beliefs or understanding than you do. Uh, you're more likely to connect with them in a conversation than online or any other way. 
So I think that's a great place to start. I think by doing some background research online, that's also really helpful so that you feel comfortable and know some of maybe the key things you want to get across. And practice writing, practice speaking on your own or with friends or family, whoever you're comfortable with. And just don't be too hard on yourself. I think, you know, everyone has to start somewhere and we're all more comfortable with some things than other things. So just give yourself the time and space to improve. In addition to just practicing writing, you actually also got a writing certificate. Is that right? You, mm-hmm. you um, what is it called? Is it a... Yeah, so I got a graduate certificate in creative nonfiction writing. (laughs) How did that help you in becoming a better communicator? Yeah, I think what it did really was boost my confidence in my writing. And it also put me out of my comfort zone initially with my writing. So I got this graduate certificate while I was doing my PhD because I didn't want to be stifled into one type of writing style. And so I took this course, which involved a lot of creative writing, um, writing like for literary magazines, um, writing a kind of personal memoir, uh, writing for newspapers, and just getting a sense of the different styles and audiences that you can reach with nonfiction writing, but that is really creative and engaging. And so it both like scratched an itch of something I really wanted to do, but also I think improved my writing for science and for science communication in general. So most of us aren't professional communicators. We have, you know, our day jobs that we get paid for and we uh, ideally um, should spend most of our time with. What's your one tip for for aspiring science communicators, people that just love doing it but don't have all day? What's your what's your tip? Wow, the magic bullet. Yeah. That's one thing. Yeah. Well, just start with one thing that you're interested in. So if you start an Instagram and post once or twice a week about what you're doing in the lab or in the field, and that's your SciComm, that's great. And over time, learn how to use that better to connect with people. Uh, If you like writing, just try writing one blog a month, you know, have realistic goals and, you know, get your feet wet, so to speak, Um, dabble, but stick with it for a period of time. And that will give you the chance to improve. And then along with that, I'd say just follow people on social media that you admire that are good science communicators, whether or not that's their job. Uh, there's a lot of scientists who are great communicators or you know, writers who communicate science well. And I think that just gives you that dose of inspiration and also something to work towards. I was going to touch on, I, I, read, your, I read a blog post that you wrote. Uh, I read that this morning, and and I thought it was really interesting. It's like this this kind of challenge. There was this uh, an article by someone whose name I forgot, who was like, "If you wanna if you wanna get people to act, you need to panic them." And then Eric Holthouse wrote a response right. was like, "If you wanna panic people, that's not a good strategy. How do you hit the soft spot in mm-hmm. the middle?" I think that's the big question of of the day um, and the biggest challenge. So how do you not sugarcoat it? an issue like climate change, um, but still, but not make people feel like there's nothing they can do. And I can't say I've solved that. I think that it's really important to tell the reality of the science, which is very dire and it's not uplifting, but it's important to be honest about it. And that's how you build the trust of the public is again, being consistent and saying, you know, we know this much, but we know that there's room for us to change and we know that there's some actions we can take that will have a big positive impact. And I think 
what I like to do is give people kind of tiered actions. So nobody wants to hear switch off your lights at home. Like it's just, it's honestly not going to do anything, right? Um, but lots of actions together can add up. So you want to give people the short-term things like, yes, it's great to reduce your carbon footprint by flying less, by, you know, choosing a car that's either a hybrid or, you know, more fuel efficient. Um, you can use solar panels, but then we also need to put pressure on local governments, on uh, federal government for policy changes, because there's a lot going on at the policy level and at the corporate level that's out of our control. And so it's not, I don't feel like all the blame needs to be put on individuals. You know, I think it's a concerted effort from top down and bottom up that needs to happen. And so I don't know if that's necessarily going to convince people, but I think explaining the situation with some nuance and then explaining that it's not just you, I'm not blaming you as an individual, but we all can participate in these solutions is one way to go that could potentially have a better outcome than the two extremes. That's a good, that's a good suggestion. So you don't, don't just tell people what the problem is and that we're all doomed, but tell them what the problem is and then show them ways out of it mm -hmm. kind of on like different levels. I think starting locally is actually one of the best ways to do it because that's where you can see things change on the ground and you feel like you're a part of a solution. And then that effectively can build up very quickly to state and federal level, right? It's happened in terms of plastic pollution and a lot of other legislation too. So there's nothing wrong, even though climate change is a global issue, I think there's a lot to be said for starting out with your local councils and local communities for making change because you set an example and it catches fire and it goes from right. there. Right, right. It's like start small, kind of engage yourself um, by you know, switching to renewable energies and then you've done the first step and you know you want your neighbor to, to go with you to do, to do the same thing and then mm -hmm. off your street, um, that's the same thing. It kind of grows from there. It's kind yeah, of and you can support uh, each other as you do that then yeah, too, which and, is and great. None of us have to do it all by ourselves. It's not right. all my fault that you know um, things are gonna, not going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like instead of having a blame game where everyone's out for themselves, I feel like it's this building community that's really going to be the way to save ourselves. Honestly, you know, I think a lot of us have lost a sense of community in the modern age. So by coming together as communities to solve big problems, it's like a win-win. One last question. Mm -hmm. A couple of decades um, ago, we, we tried to understand how the earth is going to change. And now we're kind of at the point where we're trying to understand what to do about it. Mm -hmm. um, and for me as a geographer, I kind of see all the interactions. I see interactions between temperature increase and increases of wildfire, increases in um, disease spreading, um, you know, mortality rates in cities or in, in, in countries that are more affected. As a science communicator, how do you deal with this sort of increasing complexity that we're now understanding, that we're now beginning to see? Um, how, do you, how do you communicate that? Do you communicate right. that or do you always kind of boil it down to like one um, example? Yeah, that's a great question because I think ultimately it's all connected, right? But when you break that down, it's really complicated to explain to someone without a scientific background, especially. And even in science, you can't study the whole system all at once, right? It's just nearly impossible. You always have to break it down. So I think 
generally in my experience, um, I think emphasizing connections is really important, but I think you still need to focus on pieces of the system that connect with the people you're talking to. So it goes back to who is your audience and what do they care about? And if public health is your way in, then talk about the public health and disease you know, effects um, happening from climate change. If it's people that care about losing their coastline, then talk about sea level rise. So I think you can still pull out the pieces that connect most with people and connect it back to the whole, but you're more likely to grab their attention and you know, connect with what they're concerned about and make something that's very abstract and overwhelming a little more concrete to people. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to end it there. Okay. And that's it for our first episode of the ECCF podcast. Thanks for listening. And many thanks to Chris and Weiss for sitting down with us. In our quest for environmental science and science communication, Kristen will join this Saturday an all-female crew of researchers that sails the oceans to study plastic pollution. To find out more, go to expedition.com, that is expedition with two X. You can also find Kristen on Twitter and Instagram under the handle Dr. K by the Day. Learn more about the Long-Term Ecological Research Network at lternet.edu. And finally, you can check out Kristen's research and her blog at kristensherryweiss.com. This episode was produced and edited by Dr. Tony Clem, with tech support from the Department of Ecosystem Science and Management and the University Library at Texas A&M University. That's it for this episode. I'm Tony Clem. See you next time.